Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Uh, actually, the, what I was planning for the podcast this week kind of fell through. That happens every now and then, and uh, it's particularly kind of tight this week because I'm heading out of town for a few things. And I, I was looking back then and saw that I still have this kind of treasure trove of things from CNU 21. And I thought, I'm just going to kind of mix and match some of this together and give you uh, some of the the better conversations or better discussions. So you're going to hear me just chatting with a few people and you're going to hear uh, some other talks that were given uh, that I particularly enjoyed that I'm just going to cut snippets out of. So uh, enjoy this week uh, and uh, I'll be back soon with some more on the Strong Towns podcast. Take care, everyone, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. You're listening to the Strong Towns podcast. Edward Erford, <laughs> you just listened to Andres Duani with me talk for, uh, I don't know how long, hour and a half. It's fantastic. What did you think? I mean, what did you take away from his stuff? I think we have a challenge now. There, there are two things that I saw that were amazing and only happened at CNU. One, Andres outlined a book that he once written, and he's invited every member of the Congress to participate in co-authorship of it. So there's no other organization in the world that you would have a book proposed to be written by members. Right. The other challenge out there that's amazing is the uh, pink agenda. We need to look at ways to reduce the red tape to get projects built. And I think this organization, if we're able to organize the urban realm into the transect, we should be able to organize codes into a rational way so projects can be built. I did. I did think it was awesome tying in the essentially the next gen tactical urbanism and and making the point that look, you know, back then we could we could build seaside. Today, the only thing that they can build is a a corner cafe. Uh, wow, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, I mean, we're struggling. We we've, we've overcoded ourselves and go to any community, try to open up a lemonade stand. Yeah, you can't do it. It's illegal and it's a shame. It's not what our founding of this country is about. It's not the purpose of our cities. So we have the challenge. You and I are meeting at Gracie's in an hour? We sure are. All right. See you then. Thanks, man. All right. Will Dowdy, <laughs> pool playing uh, aficionado. You just sat through the, the Duane's plenary. What do you think? What do you think the challenge coming out of that is? Well, the plenary was excellent. The, uh, the challenge is reinventing reinventing careers, reinventing a vision, and reinventing a, a way that the CNU operates. So I'm very excited about that, but it's going to be difficult. I, I think Duane gave a direction, and I think he gave a vision, but it's going to take a lot of work to get that in place. Did you, I mean, I, I was, I've heard him be critical of next gen and tactical urbanism and, uh, but he seemed to be, if not embracing it, at least saying, look, uh, this is, there's a reason why this is going on and we need to pay attention to it. I think he, I think he did a very good job of, of actually putting next-gen and tactical urbanism in their places. And I, I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I mean, he, he showed what role these, these groups play. And they're not the end-all, be-all. They're, they're pieces within a larger group, and, and that's he's exactly right. 
And, and I, I think he did an excellent job of saying that there is a reason why, why next generation people are working on getting benches in places and they're working on getting art installations. It's often because it's so hard to do more. So, so I think he did a very good job of explaining the limitations that have been put on this generation. You're next. Andrew Burleson. You just, I want to get your reaction to the plenary, to Dwani. Uh, yeah, <laughs> not, not to be put on the spot. Um, I think Dwani is really entertaining every time. He just, he just doesn't care what anybody thinks. He just says what he thinks needs to be said. And uh, he... Uh, now, you didn't take offense to his, his poke at Austin, right? No, I loved it. I'm always telling people Austin's overhyped. I'm from Austin. I like Austin. It's a nice town. But the hype exceeds the reality. No, uh, he said he said some stuff I thought was interesting, especially for us at Strong Towns. He said that, you know, seeing you as an organization is a group that forges ideas, and uh, that just we sort of uh, embrace the idea of forging ideas and letting other people take them to the masses and find many, many different ways of distributing those ideas to different audiences that need to hear them. And I thought that was. Uh, you, you know, a really good way to think about how we, a, a lot of the core people in Strong Towns are also CNU members, and you know, is there, it would be easy to think there might be some kind of conflict of like, well, why is it that like everybody who's in this one organization is also in this other organization, and like, why is that two separate things? But, you know, really we're trying really hard to talk about uh, in the everyday lives of regular people, how does the health of your city like affect you? How does it matter? Like, why is your city, if your city is struggling, why is it struggling? And CNU, uh, you know, the people who are in this crowd tend to be tuned into those things, but they're, you know, they're 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 tuned into them at the sort of nerdy academic level of like wanting to pick apart the theory and like understand the deep inner workings of the universe of like how did these things come to be. Um, whereas the average person in the average town, uh, I mean, might appreciate some of that, but it's going to be more likely to care about okay, how does the what's the practical application like? What is the specific situation in my city, and what are the specific things that we need to do to address our problems? And the theory is cool, but like I don't really want to spend a lot of time worrying about that. And that's, so I feel like that's where Strong Towns is sort of making that bridge that we're trying to tell people, look, let's be real about what's going on in your community and the like details of what you're facing. And so I don't know. I thought that was really an interesting thing to hear him kind of reaffirm that that's what that's what this organization's about. And I feel like that is empowering for an organization like ours that borrows a lot of CNU's ideas. See, I'm listening to him talk about the pink thing. The idea of we need to remove the red tape and get rid of it. And I'm, I'm thinking adaptive code. I mean, as soon as I hear him talking about that, I'm like, he's talking to Andrew Burleson here. Yeah, I'm hoping we can. We're going to have a presentation about it on Friday. Uh, uh, it'll be short, but I'm hoping we can somehow get Duane to show up to that and talk about it. Because, yeah, it's a, it's a totally different process, a way of thinking about what's the least, what are the smallest amount of rules you need to create a productive built environment. And, uh, Hopefully he'll be uh, ready to jump in. on Well, and essentially trust the chaos of, you know, of, of well, I, I thought his talk about the Mormon block, how the Mormon block could be looked at as this like very prescriptive thing. But in reality is, is it was the minimal framework needed to basically put decisions down to a lower level on how to micro use these places. Right. Yeah. I mean, I. I had also not thought of it that way before, but when he shows the slides of what was it supposed to look like in the 1800s or what did it originally look like, what it originally looked like was just enough connectivity to make sure that this place could incrementally expand as needed and that inside of the blocks is where all the action happened and each block could be chopped into a million pieces in every different imaginable way. And that's really interesting. That's a very flexible idea. So, uh, yeah, I hope we'll uh, be able to take the adaptive code idea and, and run with it. So we'll see how that goes.
Thanks, Andrew. I'm going to grab Nate. Hey, Chuck. Hey, how's it going, Nate? Uh, it's going great. We you... just finished Andre Stuani's 9 a.m. morning plenary. <laughs> I have never been this excited waking up so early. Awesome. Um, it, was a, it was great. And one of the great things about CNU, um, you have such great minds and such great speakers here that I'm, like, totally refreshed. So this is my professional New Year's. Right? Like, I come out of this, I'm like, okay, I'm going to set some goals, and I'm going to go for it. Yeah. So it really has that type of, that it has that type of feel, and it's really exciting. So what, what is your, okay, you, you walk out of here, what kind of things are you now inspired to take on? I mean, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the takeaway for you from this? I was, uh, I was really inspired by pink codes, and I've, I've, I've heard these around. The idea is that we need a more adaptive code. The problem is it's so impossible to get things done, uh, whether that's the bureaucracy, the coding, or just the money that comes behind that, that we're really struggling to get things done. And I look at kind of my hometown, the struggle to get things done translates to keeping the status quo of parking lots. Um, how do we change that? And uh, it seems like pink codes or an adaptive code set uh, would be a great transition from the rigid restrictions of modern city code, which um, modern city code is really kind of built on itself and it's added layer upon layer upon layer. And really our way to fix it, even through new urbanism, has been to patch it. So we'll say, we'll create a small area plan. But really you're just adding an extra layer on top of everything. And as someone who occasionally deals with code in my day-to-day -day job, uh, I look at this and as someone who has literally studied this, has a master's degree in it, I'm still left scratching my head trying to figure out what is going on. Like, I went to school for this, and I do this as a career. <laughs> and for a simple project, I shouldn't have to strain myself and get stressed out about how we can do something that should be seemingly simple. Awesome. Hey, thanks, Nate. Hey, thanks again, Chuck. Hey. All right. Next, we have uh, Faith Cable Kumon, who's going to talk to us about productive transit. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I am Faith Cable Kuman. I am a partnership manager for Smith Partners in Minneapolis. I'm going to talk a little bit more about productive transit. Uh, unfortunately, our uh, transit systems are planned with the same misguided, auto-oriented engineering uh, standards that have given us roads and unproductive places. So a few examples from the Twin Cities. Well, we really struggle to plan successful transit lines when we plan them like highways. And that stems all the way from where we locate it, how we study the environmental impacts, the ridership models, the design, and then we wonder at the end whether or not we've created economic opportunity. When we really should be asking functionally, where does the line go? So Jeff Wood's spin slicing of transit, which I love, uh, perhaps instead of a million different factors like connections to households, zoning changes, et cetera, we should just ask where does the line go? And my metric of, in, of choice would be intensity workers and residents, because if you connect to places of high intensity, you can't lose. And why do we have such a hard time saying where the line goes? Well, we come up with these very generic purpose statements. You know, the purpose of this transitway is to provide transit service satisfying the long-term regional mobility and accessibility needs for businesses and the traffic public. This is basically the definition of transportation. <laughs> and then we wonder why we're not quite sure where the line goes. 
at least with our Hiawatha line, we know it goes from downtown Minneapolis to the airport in the Mall of America. It also hits the densest residential neighborhood in the region. Several other residential neighborhoods, a TOD district in Bloomington, at least they're trying, the VA hospital, at least we have some destinations we can identify. So now that we've built that and we're building Central Corridor from downtown Minneapolis to the University of Minnesota to St. Paul, now we're, we're kind of struggling with how, you know where we're putting future transit. And other than downtown St. Paul, you could talk about cornfields to wetlands, back of a strip mall to a park and ride, suburban apartment complex to a freeway transfer station. These are the descriptions that you could apply to some of the things we're planning. And how do we do this? Well. We draw a bunch of transit lines on a map, generally in a cardinal direction where people want transit, and that usually has some existing rail right-of-way or perhaps freeway right-of-way. And then we draw a whole bunch of lines to try to figure out how to connect to that right-of-way or path of least resistance, as it could otherwise be called. Yet we don't really look at the, the context. And when our transit engineers are drawing the street sections, they don't analyze what's on either side. And if it's a cornfield or if it's a concrete jungle, we don't really know from this section where this is. So what should we be looking at more? We should never draw a line on the map without knowing whether it fits between the building face and building face. We never do this. But we should every single time, because otherwise we might realize that, holy cow, we have the right, wrong transit mode in the wrong place, or we have the right transit mode, but it should go somewhere else. So after we spend this time trying to figure out where our transit line should go, then we go and analyze the environmental impacts as required by the National Environmental Protection Act, which was created in the 1960s you know, as a result of all the freeways that sliced through our urban neighborhoods and created a lot of really substantial problems for them. Granted, we spend a lot of time about, you know, and years and a thousand pieces of paper we will never get back analyzing whether or not we've correctly protected the environment from transit. So we analyze the land use and the farmlands and the air quality and the noise and the social justice effects and the transit effects and the economic conditions and a whole lot of other things in a document that will probably never get read except by people who are paid to read it. And, uh, you know, not only that, we also analyze the grievous impact uh, environmental impact nonetheless to vehicle level of service and then find that you know for central quarter oh no we can't have a two-lane road we must have a four-lane road heaven forbid that the cars slow down that are going next to a transit line that's supposed to carry 30,000 people and fundamentally the whole NEPA process really favors projects that go in areas of low value because then you have low impact to those places so heaven forbid you ever have a linear park with transit on it because that would be a big negative impact and that would be very bad in the NEPA process. Similarly, we have ridership modeling that gives preference to park and ride lots over new development because our ridership models are based on regional travel models that are highway based. So we know that those cars will show up, theoretically. We, we really consider that development too speculative, therefore, when transit projects are designed by highway engineers, we forget to ask ourselves, are we creating great places? This is our Hiawatha LRT. We have a, a strode over on one side. We have a clear zone next to it for all those cars running off the road. And, you know, high voltage power lines in there too. And then we ask ourselves, well, yeah, no, maybe highway design doesn't really create great places. We have big bridges over stroads, we have chain link fences with new barriers, we have signs galore and a rather mediocre sidewalk that goes and connects to the actual transit station itself that transit riders would walk on. So
So then when we ask ourselves, well, why does Hiawatha struggle to become a destination and not a quarter? Well, look at the road we put it next to. <laughs> Are we surprised? No, we should fully expect that because the environment that we've created is just simply not conducive to new development. But yet, that's not part of our regional conversation at this point. And at least we are doing a lot of things better in Central Corridor. The Central Corridor Investment Framework identified $6 billion in future investment for $1 billion transit line investment, which is, would largely be private sector development. But that's only because the city of St. Paul did a really excellent job planning for that new development. But we weren't looking at that at the beginning that that's where the line should go because of that. And we really need to be looking more at our productive places. And I'll thank Joe Minicozzi for going over every presentation he has in his library, including all the ones that focus on, you know, what the incredible mixed use value is compared to, say, you know, your Walmart and your strip mall. So when we build transit, we need to ask ourselves, why are we building transit? We build transit to support productive places, productivity that we can measure. That's why we're building transit. So when we go back to our original question, well, where should the line go? It should go to productive places, existing and future. Thank you. Thank you. We will now have a second affirmative response from Howard Glass and Placemaker. All right, um, six minutes, right? I mean, you don't have to start that. I don't have six minutes for this stuff. Uh, first point is uh, I'm actually here uh, while I'm in your in the program. Jeff Dyer is listed in the program, and he's not here. And in, if you were to look at most of the placemakers' work, which is the reason why we're in this debate, it's, there's a, a lot of twisty, turny little streets, and those are really Jeff's drawings. I'm the guy <laughs> that draws the grid that they go, nah, let's do this instead. And so they, the, that, I'm the design, that, I'm, that I'm the one that uses the grid and I'm not as good a designer as Jeff, I think that's affirmation that the grid doesn't work as well. Um, <laughs> but I'm here to defend Jeff's honor. And uh, so I'll do my best. Um, the, the, the point of history, where the history came out is Kevin was with us when we had the Leon Creer at, the, at uh, West Palm Beach CNU. And Kevin stood up and said, but this is an American, you know, whatever. History. Um, and, Le and Leon was very impressed and actually mentioned you in the, in the plenary the next day. And so, so we're here today because of that. Um, and that's, that's fantastic, thank you very much. However, the, the 1785 land ordinance, U.S. grid, is really, built, is really just manifest destiny, built upon the Spanish conquest grid of the Law of the Indies, built upon the Roman Empire expansion, built upon the Greek military tool to protect themselves from you know, whoever, uh, that guy, Xerxes, that big tall guy in the movie. And, uh, and so, um, since that grid, pretty much every urban design or every urbanist movement, the Garden City movement and its polycentric city, the City Beautiful movement and its axles and its interrupted grid, um, the modernism uh, uh, and its dendritic system of cul-de-sacs to streets to arterials to collectors to highways, and now the new urbanism has been trying to undo the grid. Everyone. Not one has said, let's go back to the grid. I mean, we're here at the New Urbanists discussing it. If we, if we were all over this, we wouldn't have this debate at all. But it is a debate, 
because you were so moved by Leon Creer last year. And, and so the, the, the idea that, and this is from John Rep's quote, 1965, said the land ordinance worked like a code. Now we're going to get back to last year's Congress when the beginning of the of, um, of a, the debate where we had uh, Dan Solomon talk about how um, the, the 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 Cartesian object in space being in, in the smart code or lead in deep or a grid from whatever in history imposed on a landscape um, is you know not where we are today. We are more of a, a more of a complex society. And and John Rep says. The land ordinance worked like a code, that, that object in space code, stamping an ideological brand of uniformity and mediocrity on American cities from coast to coast. And um, if I remember correctly, Bill, can I tell the, can I tell the Andres Rep, Rep's uh, anecdote? Or will you use it? We could end with that. Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, so my time is almost up here. Uh, I, I, uh, okay, so, uh, so my point is, is that is that the grid only really works when it's the baseline of, of our culture building upon it, of, human, uh, of, a beginning of, the, of bringing about the human scale, bringing about uh, our, um, our, our, uh, our nature, our, um, our climate. Um, so the uniform grid of 1785, which has nothing to do with New York, nothing to do with Savannah, nothing to do with any of the examples that has already been brought up today, is the U.S. West, is built upon vice. Not one of the grids in the U.S. West, from Ohio to the United to, to San Diego, is publicly owned. It's all on private land. All it's it's it, the cities have the right, the, you know, the, they, they have the dedicated right, but it's all private land. And the grid, the grid of the Greeks to defend themselves, the grid of the of the Romans to expand their empire, which actually made them broke later on when they couldn't sustain the infrastructure. Oh, how mindful of today that is uh, of their expanding grids. Um, uh, empire, um, the grid of the um, law of the Indies that was based upon a public space centering and working with the local native tribes to not uh, disrupt their patterns, to our grid of manifest destiny is really all about vice. It's like Las Vegas. It's for uh, divvying up land, being capitalistic at all costs. And we know capitalism at all costs is a part of the reason why we are a democracy. Thank you very much. Yeah, useful. Hey, Steve Muzon, uh, tell me about your pedestrian propulsion. How many times is efficiency used in your uh, idea of, of a place that's loved? Yeah. Well, those are the two questions. All right. <laughs> but I don't, see, I don't see efficiency as being part of a lovable, um, um, uh, uh, the, the terms that you like to bring up where the place matters and, 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 and delight matters and we're taking all of those out with efficiency why don't you just put more water down the pipe into the pit and put it in the storm drain and don't worry about where it goes that's the u.s grid but is efficiency not just one of the elements that promote yeah but not the primary element it's the primary element of the grid effectiveness which is the new word is is a better is a, is a better purpose and we weren't very effective just look at where we are today okay uh, hi, I'm Kevin Klinkenberg, and uh, I'm with Olson Associates, and I'm here to set the record straight on this issue. So um, urbanism at its core is about sociability. It's about life in public. This is ultimately what we care most about and is really our key measure. And so as a result, we should focus on techniques and plans that are proven to provide and promote sociability. 
the Western grid, which, as Howard alludes to, is not you know something that is simply west of the Mississippi. It was come came from the 1785 or 87 land ordinance, 87 I think, uh, which started with Ohio and went ev essentially everything west from there. No, 87 was Michigan. 85 was Ohio. Okay, we'll we'll check that we'll check that in a second. Um, but the Western grid, with its frequent blocks and modest block sizes, is proven to work. Frequent, easy-to-navigate paths and familiar public gathering places encourage people to stroll and wander far more than confusing street patterns and the designs that artificially force your view. Public spaces that are actually shaped and sized to human activity, like sports, for example, draw more people out than some of the sort of small, irregular spaces that are destined for little use. So the grid is inherently a sociable device. It is also inherently a democratic device. The Western grid itself was promoted not simply for mercantile reasons, but it was promoted to, in, in the spirit of Thomas Jefferson's desire to create a nation of citizen farmers. Each township, as it was stamped out across the landscape, typically included one section that was allotted for a public school. Uh, the grid was inherently promoted by Jefferson because he believed that that was the best democratic way to settle the continent uh, and promote and, and the use of that device, which came out of his desire for a uniform system of weights and measures, was inherently something that was fair and equal and would promote those values in society. The things that Bill and Howard are talking about and promoting are plans that are hierarchical or some might say aristocratic. The grid, the grid instead promotes equality of opportunity. The grid is also inherently better for the world of real estate, and, and Paul talked a little bit about this, but what I would say is if you want to design a plan that won't get built or will be substantially bastardized, then you should follow the approach that Bill and Howard suggest. If <laughs> grids are inherently affordable, they're cheaper to build on every front, from conception to execution, and they don't require great architecture to succeed. Now, I've seen Bill and Howard draw some beautiful plans, and I think if they were hired to design the buildings in those places, I have no doubt, no doubt that those would be excellent places. But they require great architecture in far too many cases, and cities in a, gridded, in a simple, formal, gridded layout do not require architecture to be successful as sociable, walkable places. And that's critically important as we think about how to scale urbanism. Uh, we can't always assume that we can scale and build more quickly and build for the, the billions of people by doing sort of very, you know, very small plans that take a lot of care. Further, as Andreas noted this morning, the current situation that we're all too familiar with is not what was intended for a lot of our Western cities. The wide rights of way, yes, but the, the, what we see today with the six-lane roads and everything else is a function of the car culture and its demands imposed on the system. It's essentially no different than any city or town across North America. The wide right-of-way can be great, good, fair, or lousy, all depending on the design itself. I live, for example, near some narrow two-lane, one-way streets in Savannah that are equally as toxic because they promote high-speed traffic. They're, tra they're streets that were redesigned for cars primarily. In fact, the right-of-way itself 
if it was approached from the perspective of, of an urbanist, it provides immense advantages for great bike, pedestrian, and transit infrastructure and trees, for example, that can actually thrive on an urban street, which is something that doesn't happen in a lot of very narrow rights-of-ways, as we all know way too well. Finally, the most important element is block size and not street right-of-way. In fact, the only real difference in Salt Lake and the quote-unquote Mormon grid is that the 660 by 660 10-acre subdivision was not subdivided further. As the uh, Interrata shows, which um, is a really, really good exhibit if you get a chance to look at it, the possibilities for subdividing it further are immense. You can do that very well in a, in a number of great ways. I particularly note Mr. Sobel's plan for that competition, mm -hmm. uh, which shows the 660-foot square block scales to a single ward in the Savannah plan. So while the, while the ubiquitous western grid of 660 square, or actually a mile square, is, is what we see today and had no, it came after Savannah, the idea is clearly nothing new. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, I have no slides. Uh, I'm just going to tell a little story. And uh, the story begins with a, an act of audience participation. What I want to start with, I assume that everybody in this room is an urbanist. Uh, oh, good, I see some show of hands. Great, that's really encouraging. Um, I, I, what I want to know for starters is how many of you are urbanists because you love great places? Any urbanists because you love great places? Okay, this is good, it's very encouraging. How many of you hate crap? <laughs> Me too. Me too. I am an urbanist because I love great places and I hate crap. In fact, I, I hate crap so much that my mission in life is to recapture market share from crap and deliver it to the good stuff so that more good stuff gets built and we get less crap. Now this is a little tricky because I'm not an architect, um, I'm not a planner, I'm not a developer, I'm none of those things. Um, I'm a strategist, a classically trained strategist from a school of economics in the faraway land of Sweden. And uh, I'm not Swedish by the way, this is, uh, this is an authentic accent. Um, and when I look at how design gets from the talent to the market, you recognize all these good business terms. Uh, from the talent to the market, what I see is an industry that's barely changed in hundreds of years, if not more. And um, you might argue that, uh, but what about technology? You know, that, that's really changed our work a lot. I would argue that, uh, that the advent of uh, the use of computers and design is really just a swap of tools. And although it has, has changed design, sometimes for the worse. It hasn't really changed the business model according to which good design or bad gets delivered. And I would, I would suggest that maybe the commodification of architecture and of design is uh, perhaps some evidence of that. I think this commodification is acute. 
I think it's a cue for us to re-examine the business model by which design gets delivered to the marketplace. And I think we should uh, take a look at what other industries who have successfully done this and are continuing to do this are doing, and I'm talking about uh, industries that are really familiar to us, like food, clothing, uh, manufacturing, and uh, maybe not so familiar, like software development. So my question for you is, what parts of your work, for the architects in this room, what parts of your work are really hard these days? What makes it really difficult for you to deliver good design to, or, or even to get work to begin with? And how can we potentially learn some lessons from these other industries and apply them to the delivery of good design so that we can make more good stuff and build less crap? Thank you. All right, up next we have John Anderson. John. Howard Blackson had the over-under on curse words per slide at five, so you'll take your word. Okay, the, um, I want to get to a very simple direct point, uh, and I'm hoping to make that point substantially by irritating you a bit along the way. Um, I think we've, we've come to a point where we recognize that very, very large projects present large risks. Uh, small mistakes are made large. You end up betting kind of a lot on a large podium project as opposed to the smaller townhouse or shop house. So how do we deliver small projects again? We, we need to think incrementally. We need to be thinking about the scale of the building coming down to reduce risk. We need to reduce complexity using simple basic buildings and we need to figure out how we're gonna do that with less overhead. Now we got all kinds of overhead associated with, we always have to ask for so much freaking permission just to do anything, and there's very little time left in the day for actually building and demonstrating what we're talking about. So I think a model that flips that, what if you had only 20% of your time devoted to slavishly asking for permission again and again and again for the most basic things, and you could devote 80% of your effort to actually producing buildings? The, uh, I had a 40-second thing, so we'll flip it, yeah. It would be, miraculously, it would look like this so much better, yes. And you could probably get paid for that, as opposed to you're still at risk while you're asking permission as a developer, or trying to get another code interpretation about a, a very basic building again. Flip it. So, hit it again, sorry. The, so, simple straight-ahead, one-story liner building, you know, uh, or a simple fourplex. A half a million dollars in hard costs turns into about a $90,000 budget for your architect, your development fee, and your day-to-day -day construction manager. That's a very thin margin to take a risk on a half a million dollars. At a time when simple, straightforward fourplex buildings, great fabric buildings, how are we going to get that done on the margins available to us today? Next. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, sorry. So, 
amp it up, maybe 16 units. Now we're into a range where you can run a small operation if you're capturing or lighting your own soft costs. Get it? So my main point is, in order to be able to get to a smaller scale building, we're not going to be able to specialize and fracture things off. We're not going to have somebody who's just a developer but has to hire an architect, an urban designer, and the like. We're going to have to simplify design. You may have to capture that. So what happens uh, with construction? Do you completely set that offset? You'll probably do that as well. So I'm suggesting that instead of specialists, we crash the silos and we look for a new generation of folks willing to take the risk to take it all on, take it in-house, do it all. With the caveat that do not tell people that you went to architecture school. Okay? Consider your urbanist credentials your secret identity. Be a builder. Buy an eight-year-old pickup truck with a gun rack and a four-foot level. You know, Acquire some calluses legitimately or otherwise. You will have so much more credibility in the neighborhood meeting as the guy who builds the decent thing than the person who went to more school than somebody else did or has worked in a planning office for a very long time. Unfortunately, the professional credential we are really proud of diminishes our message to people who need to hear it so we can communicate well. They'll listen better to the janitor who walked in off the street than to someone with an advanced degree in an esoteric field. It's a rather rational thought when you think about it, given what esoteric fields have produced. So, uh, the, the chance to be the master builder again, the just regular builder, the artisan urbanist, the guy who puts up a few buildings every year, you know, that simple, basic building block infrastructure building, uh, business model needs work, uh, and I'm up for both suggestions, internship candidates, and folks that want to do otherwise. So, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Up They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. There, look up Fort Leavenworth, sir. It's the Secretary General again. Yeah. No, you can't take that, sir. I read the memo on Rwanda. Average rainfall, nine inches. That's the memo Toby wanted me to read? On short notice, yes, sir. I told him to pass block on the call. Why? Parking tickets. Now, please, don't leap into it. Don't... 
There are big signs. You can't park there. They should get towed. I hope they get towed to Queens and the Triborough is closed and there's a big craft show at Shea, a flea market or a tractor show.